Maybe we must say that our Mishnah doesn't follow Rabbi Yaisi. Mishnah says that if one person deposited 100 and another person deposited 200 with the same person, and that they each claim that they are the one who deposited 200, the Rabbanan say they each get back 100. The remaining disputed 100 should remain until Eliyahu comes. Rabbi Yaisi says doing so wouldn't hurt the one who's lying because he got his full money back. Rather, all 300 should be left until Eliyahu comes. So according to Rabbi Yaisi, in our Mishnah, we should say that the entire talus must be put away until Eliyahu comes, and yet our Mishnah says that it's divided with an oath. Is it better say the Mishnah follows the Rabbanon? According to them, since the entire talus in the Mishnah is the disputed amount, the entire talus should be put away until a yo comes as well. And for the Mishnah, in the case of the deposits, since the last 100 only belongs to one of the people and not both, we have to put it away until a yo comes. In our Mishnah, where it's possible the talus belongs to both of them, it could be even the Rabbanon would agree that the talus should be divided with an oath. However, according to Rabbi Yaisi, if in the case of deposits, where the 300 there is certainly 100 uh, of, of which belongs to one and 100 which belongs to another, and still Rabbi Yaisi says that it's put away until a yo comes, and in our Mishnah, where it's possible the talus belongs to only one, one of them, certainly we should say that the entire thing should be put away until Eliyahu comes. And for the Gemara Mishnah can follow, even Rabbi Yaisi. The difference between the cases is that in the case of the deposit, there is certainly someone who is lying. And our Mishnah is not necessarily someone who is lying. Another terrorist, in the case of the deposit, Rabbi Yaisi feels we must penalize the liar to try to make him admit his guilt. And we do so by holding his money hostage as well. In the case of the Mishnah, even if one of them is lying, he doesn't lose anything by having the talus put away. It's not his, and he has no money that's being held hostage. In fact, the second answer explains the case of our Mishnah regarding the found item. However, it doesn't explain the case of the Mishnah where the item was purchased. In that case, the item and the purchase money of both parties is put away. It wouldn't incentivize the liar to admit his guilt. Mar says we have to say that the first answer is the better answer. The more explains that the case of Bananas that we referred to earlier discusses where a person asks a storekeeper to lay out money for him to pay his workers, and the storekeeper then claims that he gave the workers money as instructed, and the workers claim that they never got money. The Rabbanon there said that the storekeeper and the workers each swear to their claim, and each gets paid by the person. Now, according to Rabbi and the Rabbanon regarding the deposit, since there is definitely a liar here, they should require the person to take the money owed and put it away uh, for Elio. Mar says that case is different because the storekeeper can tell the person, I have done your shlichas as you asked, and I have no relationship with your workers, I don't have to now live buy and accept their oath. You should have told me that you only wanted me to give the money in front of witnesses. That's why he can't be made to wait for his money. Similarly, the worker can tell the person, listen, I worked for you. I have no relationship with the storekeeper, and therefore I can't be asked to accept his oath. Therefore, they can't be made to wait for their money, and he must pay them now as well. taught if a person claims that another owes him 100, and the person denies the entire claim, the witnesses and, and the witnesses that come and testify that he owes 50, he would have to pay 50 and then swear regarding the rest. This is when two witnesses come and say that. Why? So that a person's own partial admission, which causes him to swear should not be stronger than the testimony of witnesses based on a Kavachaymer. We can see this from our Mishnah as well. In the case of our Mishnah, whatever each person physically has in his hand is considered like there are witnesses testifying to ownership of that piece, and yet we see that he still has to swear. Fekhmer, why does say that Kavachaymer is needed? And if not for the Kavachaymer, we would say that the reason for the swearing on an admission is based on the logic of Rabbah, who says that one who partially denies a claim has to swear because really he wants to deny the entire claim. But he doesn't have the chutzpah to do so because the lender did him a favor by lending him money. He also doesn't, have, he doesn't want to admit the entire claim because he's looking for more time to get the money paid. Therefore, the Torah makes him swear so that he should admit to, admit to the entire claim. Now, this logic doesn't apply to where the partial liability comes about through the testimony of witnesses, and we would therefore say that no swearing is necessary when, that, when witnesses testify. That's why we need the Kavachaymer to teach, and an oath is necessary in that case as well. In fact, what's the Kavachaymer? It's, it's that if one's admission, which can't make him liable to pay money, can make him liable to swear, then testimony of witnesses, which can make him liable to pay money, can certainly make him liable to swear. In fact, the admission can most certainly obligate someone to pay money. Mara says the money we refer to over here as a penalty. An admission actually makes one putter from paying a penalty. In fact, maybe an admission is stronger as we see that when a person admits to having done something that would make him chayv to bring a chatos and witnesses testify that he did not do what he says to do, we follow him and we bring the chatos. He has to bring the chatos. If the situation were reversed, 
we would follow him and he would not bring a chattas. Maybe this is also why the mission makes one chayef to swear. And for the more of Chiyah Holzer who says that witnesses would obligate a person to bring a chattas based on this kavachaymer. Because if witnesses can put someone to death, then they can certainly obligate someone to bring a chattas. Maybe an admission is stronger as we see that when a person admits to having sworn falsely regarding a monetary claim, he obligates himself to bring an asham. Whereas if witnesses testify that he swore falsely, he would not be obligated to bring an asham. Mar says, Rav Meir would use the same kavachaymer as he did for a carbon chattas and apply it to allow witnesses to obligate a person for an asham as well. And therefore, that's what he would hold over here too. Fragmar maybe the admission is strong as we see that when a person admits to having sworn falsely regarding a monetary claim, he obligates himself to pay an additional fifth. Whereas if witnesses testify that he swore falsely, he would not have to pay that fifth. Mar says Rabchia would again hold a mayor who would use the same kavachaymer to say that just like witnesses can obligate a person to bring a carbon, they can also obligate him to pay the additional fifth. Fragmar maybe the admission is stronger in that it cannot be contradicted and is not subject to hazama, whereas testimony of witnesses is subject to a contradiction in hazama. Mar says you're right. So rather Rabchia learns that partial liability uh, based on witnesses obligates. Obligates him to swear based on a kavachaymer from a single witness, from a, from, a, from an eid echad. If a single witness who cannot obligate one to pay money can obligate him to swear, then two witnesses who can obligate someone to pay money can surely obligate him to swear. In fact, the swearing obligation created by each is very different. The single witness obligates the person to swear to contradict what he testified about, whereas Rabbi is saying that the two witnesses require him to swear about what's being denied. So rather, our Papa said he learns it from Gilgal Shu of a single witness. Once a single witness creates an obligation to swear, the defendant can also be made to swear on other claims as well. If a single witness can do that, then surely two witnesses can create an obligation to swear on the denied claim. In fact, maybe Gilgal Shu is different. Because it's one oath that brings about the obligation of another oath, but with two witnesses, where it's a monetary of the obligation, maybe it can't bring about an obligation to swear. Mar says, really learns it from a single witness who can obligate a person to swear. Although we said a single witness creates an obligation to swear on what was testified, and Rabbi is trying to learn to obligate him to swear on what was denied, we can say that a self-admission swears on what was denied, and we can learn from there. Although we can ask that an admission is not subject to contradiction, we can say that a single witness is subject to contradiction, and yet he creates an obligation to swear. Based on this, we have a side of Shava, that these cases are cases of claim, a denial, and a resulting oath. Based on these characteristics, that can add the case of when witnesses support the claim and there is a denial that he has to swear over there as well. Maybe the Tzad show between the others is that the person is not established as lying, whereas the two witnesses he has lied, he, once he, he's established as a liar. Whereas we find that Rabbi Yitzhak the name of Chisah said, someone who denied a loan and was proven false by witnesses may still be a valid witness. We therefore see that he's not established as a liar. In fact, maybe the Tzad show between the others is that they are subject to Hazama. They're not subject to Hazama, whereas witnesses are. Rabbi does not consider that this difference a basis as to why the others can obligate an oath. Therefore, this can't be used to refute how he learns witnesses from a single witness or and from uh, an admission.